I'll tell you uh, about a story. Uh, the Lord had uh, followers who really got to be enamored by him. They loved him because he was unique. He was a rabbi like none other. And they felt really hopeful and expectant about future possibilities with this rabbi Jesus. And they were dining together on one occasion. It was called a Passover Seder. Uh, sometimes we refer to it as the Last Supper, and it has come to be called the Lord's Supper. That was the occasion. And during that meal, many things happened, some good, some bad. But around that time, the Lord began to seriously explain to these intimate followers of his that he was departing. And it's a little hard for us to realize the impact of that reality upon them. Relationships were developing. He was saying things and doing things they've never experienced before. They were fishermen, some, and the Lord promoted them and said, you keep following me and I'll make you fishers of people, fishers of men. They were so excited and hopeful until they heard these words, soon I will be departing from you. And this really shook up their whole system and their expectations. And the Lord being sensitive and insightful and knowing all things, began to offer them words of hope and comfort in order to help them deal with this newfound reality. And one of the things he did, we saw this in prior weeks, was to give them a hopeful promise of ongoing ministry and purpose even in his absence. In fact, we read on a prior Wednesday night, the Lord said to them, have you seen the things I've done? Greater works than these will you do. Well, the Lord did magnificent physical things on every level, even up to the level of raising one from the dead. I don't think he said to them, you'll do greater physical works than these, because frankly, no one has since the time of the Lord I think he meant you'll do greater spiritual works, meaning the good news about me as Savior come and fleshed in order to die as your substitute on the cross, that good news message will in an expansive way through ones such as you be carried way out of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And I think that's what the Lord meant when he said, you'll do greater works. Did you know the infinite, unbounded deity, the Lord Jesus, came to be bounded in a human body, so his presence was localized, though from before time he possesses the attribute of omnipresence, he reduced himself, he condescended, laid that aside, and became a Jewish man in a particular place we now know it to be Israel. And that was the restricted confines of the Lord's 33 years of ministry. He never, as far as we know, got too far beyond the borders of Israel. But greater works than these have taken place through the propagation of the gospel on the part of those who have been rescued by the Lord Jesus and love him. In fact, while we sit here tonight, we have 
two ladies from this church are in Kenya, in Africa. They left Monday morning. They flew to Amsterdam, then to Nairobi. We know they're well because our missions Pastor Jonathan gave us in staff a little report about it today. All 32 arrived safely with their luggage and makeup. You need that. And they're all healthy and well. And they have now uh, located themselves for the sake of the gospel in a country to which, as far as we know, the Lord himself had never been. That's an example of the greater works the Lord said Folks will perform even in his absence. Now, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't pray for these 32 ambassadors for Christ. So would you join me as we intercede on their behalf for a moment or two? Lord Jesus, thank you that though you are not physically present with us at this time, you have taken up your abode in our lives through your spirit and you have supplied and equipped us with the gospel and enabled and moved us to go to the far places of the world out of our comfort zones in order to spread the good news of salvation through a savior who suffered and died in our place. Thank you for these 32 mighty warriors and ambassadors for Christ who've left their comfort zones to go to one of the most impoverished and needy people groups on earth there in Kenya. And we pray as we sit here now to love you and love one another and feast on your scriptures. We pray, oh God, you would be feeding them with opportunities to spread the gospel. That's why they went. And so we pray men and women and children there would see the reality of your presence in their lives want to ask questions about why they've come these thousands of miles, leaving their comfort zones, homes, and family members. I pray you would miraculously work on hearts of people who don't yet know you, causing them to be interested, to ask questions. And I pray that each of the 32 ladies would get a chance to serve and to demonstrate the reality of you and their lives, but also to declare the gospel message at least one time. I pray, oh God, that as they expend themselves in energy on this task, you would breathe life back into them, that they would be blessed beyond measure. Please continue to encamp around them, keeping them safe and healthy and unified and seeing you provide in miraculous ways. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in prior weeks, the Lord said to his followers, in my absence, this is what you are to do. You'll do greater works, but you can't do it alone. So on one Wednesday night, we spoke about how he offered them this resource. He said, you've got to pray. That's where you'll find your adequacy to do this great work. You've got to pray. On another Wednesday night, he added to it and he said, not only should you pray, you should obey. Obedience is the crux of the matter. You're not going to be able to accomplish great commission tasks if you're in a state of disobedience. So he spoke to them of resources, including prayer and obedience. And then he added a third resource, and it was 
the Holy Spirit. And so he said, with prayer, obedience, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will succeed in accomplishing the greater works of taking the gospel worldwide, and this you'll do even in my absence. And it's the third component of that formula for success, the Holy Spirit, who we will speak about in two mere verses tonight. It's found in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I tried to take on more for the new year, kind of a resolution, do more than two verses at a time, but I have failed already. But these are stock full of good things. We'll read about the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 14, verse 16. I, the Lord is speaking, will ask the Father, and he, the Father, will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Uh, You may know that the word for helper in the Greek language, which underlies our English translation, the word for helper is paraclete, paraclete. And I throw it up there, not to impress you with Greek, but just to show you that one word is actually a compound word. If you divide it, you see the first part uh, consists of the first four letters, para, as in parallel. If you have two lines that are parallel, they're running alongside one another. Second part of the word, cleat, comes from a word, kaleo, which simply means to call to. And so the helper whom the Lord said would be sent, the Holy Spirit, is a resource person who the Lord said will go right alongside you as you live out your lives. And he will call out to you with guidance and encouragement. He'll be your cheerleader. He'll tell you, don't do this, do that. He'll convict you of sin, but he'll also cheer you on. He'll say, you can do it, you can do it, don't give up. And that's what the Lord said He, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who are his own, even in his absence, they, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will be able to carry on even greater works than he did when he was here. And so to offer them comfort and assurance, they're beginning to feel alone. He's saying, oh no, you will not ever have to do life alone because I will ask the Father and the Father will send to you, no, into you, another helper who is the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord said, I'm departing soon. I will ascend back into heaven to be at the Father's side. But when I return to him, I will send to you another helper from heaven and he will help you here on earth. So what is this new helper like? Well, a little more of a Greek lesson. Can you see verse 16 where it says another helper? See that word another? It's one word in English, but in Greek there are two words for another. And one of those words means another of the same kind, And the other word in Greek for the word another means another of a different kind. You may want to guess which is the word used here when the Lord Jesus speaks of another helper. I will tell you, it means another of exactly the same kind. You know what that means? The Holy Spirit's not an influence, an energy. None of this may the force be with you. None of that nonsense. He is divine, he is deity, just as the Lord is. He's a helper of exactly the same constitution, identity, and makeup as is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, 
Who could this helper be? Well, as we will see pretty clearly here in the text, it is the Holy Spirit of God. He is the helper. So Jesus was the first helper sent to us. His spirit in us is the second helper. And the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer at the point of conversion. And so think about this. Each of us who is a Christian has two divine helpers, one in heaven and one on earth. And since the second helper is a helper of exactly the same kind as the first helper, Jesus, this means Jesus is God and so too is the Holy Spirit. In fact, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is often associated with the two other members of what is referred to as the Trinity. So we think of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So for instance, in the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, 19, we read, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in whose name? Notice, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can you see? Three separate yet equal manifestations of the one God. Also, there was a time in the Bible when Paul pronounced a closing blessing or benediction upon the people he was ministering to. It's written for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Listen to Paul's benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Can you see again the three in one, the mysterious, incomprehensible, yet believable Trinity, one God who's manifested himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the helper, the inside helper, whom the Lord Jesus said, I will ask the Father to send to you. And so in verse 16, if you look carefully, you can see the workings of the Trinity. You have God the Son asking that God the Father would send God the Holy Spirit into the lives of his disciples then and now. Now listen. 2,000 years ago, can you imagine how difficult this concept was for these new Jewish believers who prided themselves on the notion of monotheism, unlike their surrounding pagan neighbors who believed in a multiplicity of gods, the Jews were raised early on to believe in the one true God. In fact, the watchwords of the Jewish faith are contained in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and they're oft repeated in worship services in the synagogue. It sounds like this. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And it means here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, all of a sudden, these new Jewish believers are confronted with the fact that though there is one God, God the Father is he, so is God the Son, and so is God the Spirit. 
I noticed the Lord in the New Testament made no attempt to explain the Trinity to his followers. And therefore, why should we waste our time attempting the impossible as well? The fact that we cannot wrap our puny minds around the notion of the Trinity does not disavow the reality of the Trinity. In fact, the New Testament in many, many places asserts that the one true God did in fact choose to manifest himself in three persons. So notice again what verse 16 says. I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate that he may be with you forever. Meaning, you cannot lose the indwelling Holy Spirit. He will abide, he will dwell in the lives of believers forever. The Spirit of God in the Old Testament existed. If he's God, he is, he contains, he possesses the attributes of God, which means eternality. He never came into being, he always was. So the Holy Spirit manifested himself in various ways, even in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would always come upon people to be their supply, to help them in various ways, but only temporarily, never permanently. In fact, this was so true that one as esteemed as David, when he fell into desperate sin with Bathsheba, it was an adulterous relationship with a married woman leading to his uh, plan uh, to murder her husband. Terrible, terrible uh, stuff. David, overcome by the reality and desperation of his sin, on one occasion prayed this in Psalm 51, verse 11. David said to God, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David beseeched Almighty God when he was confronted by the nature of his sin. He was repenting, he was confessing, but he feared the loss of God's spirit in him. He pleaded with Almighty God, please don't take your spirit from me. I want to tell you something. That is one prayer. If you're a Christian, you will never have to utter. You'll never have to pray it because the Holy Spirit today manifests himself differently than in the Old Testament today. We see it in verse 16. Jesus said, I'll ask the Father. He'll send you another helper and that helper will be with you. No, not for a while, but forever, for eternity. Now, when did that take place? When did this fresh visit, an inauguration of the Holy Spirit? When did this new empowerment, indwelling of the Holy Spirit take place? Well, it's in Acts chapter 2 on a day called Pentecost. Pentecost. In Hebrew, it's Shavuot. It means weeks because it takes place seven weeks after Passover. Shavuot. On Shavuot, according to Acts chapter 2, for the first time, the Holy Spirit came in a new and fresh way, very dramatically, to get people's attention. And from that point on, he came to occupy territory, that is, the lives of followers of Jesus, never ever to remove himself from our lives. So the disciples were beginning to lament 
the impending absence of their beloved rabbi. But really, it was good for them that he was leaving them. Because if the first helper, Jesus, was leaving them, that created an opportunity for the second helper, his spirit, to be sent to them. He was, and he indwelt them, and you and I, who are followers of Jesus down to this very day. Now, be careful not to make a mistake here. The Holy Spirit, once again, is a person. He is not an impersonal thing. As a person, therefore, he thinks, he speaks, he grieves, and he decides. And so the text before us, in keeping with this, verse 16 says that he may be with you forever. Not it. It does not say that it, an impersonal being may be with you. No, no, no. He, he has personality. The spirit's a he, not an it. He's a person in the same sense in which the first helper, God the Son, is a person. He's not an impersonal force. He has intellect. He has, he has a will. He has emotions. He has personality because he is a person. So then how does this second helper, the Holy Spirit, really help us? Uh, can I just briefly uh, take a few moments to share a few ways, I think, in which we so benefit from his presence in our life. Here's the first thing I think the Holy Spirit does. He brought us to Jesus. Yeah. See, you didn't wake up one day, nor did I, saying, I feel like this is a good day for me to be saved. No, you didn't say that. That whole notion and concept would not even be your inclination unless God began to stir you up, mess you up sometimes, bother you about your lifestyle sin, somehow let you know that there's more and you're missing out on it. Somehow God, before the fact, impressed upon you your alienation from him, your emptiness, your profound emptiness, you maybe even have heard yourself saying, I have a lot, but something is missing. What is it? You came to be on a quest to fill the void in your life. You didn't know you had a Christ-shaped hole in your life at that point, but you were becoming increasingly aware of the fact that you have a hole in your life, and there was nothing in your worldly experience that succeeded in filling it. Not money, not sex, not booze, nothing did it. They just anesthetized the pain for a little bit, but still you were left with this gnawing sensation that something's missing, something's wrong. I'll tell you who did that to you, for you. That's God, the Holy Spirit. There is not a person in here who could ever accept the Lord's invitation to be saved if the Lord himself didn't stir you up to so do it. Now, today we have theological arguments that divide our churches. Did you know that? So one school of thought says God elected you, predestined you from before time. You have nothing to do with this whole salvation experience. He imposed his salvation on you. He is sovereign and you, his grace, it's, it said, is irresistible. Now the other side says, no, that's not true. God has not in his sovereignty 
extinguished our free will. In fact, only a very secure and sovereign God would allow sinful creaturely beings like those of us gathered here tonight to exercise their free will. And so in the body of Christ, sadly, we're choosing one camp or the other and fighting with one another. And the evil one is laughing because while the gospel ought to be going forth, instead we're fighting and dividing. Uh, Folks, and I'll tell you why we're dividing because we think we have to choose one option is over against another. Could I please offer to you the third option? And the third option is that both sides are right. God has done a marvelous work of getting us ready to hear the gospel message. He's convicted us of sin and judgment and righteousness. And without that work, we could not respond to him because we're in a state of spiritual deadness. But though the sovereignty of God is indispensable in the salvation experience, still there comes a time when God has allowed us to exercise the freeness of our will such that we can say, I accept or I reject. Now you say, Stuart, you can't have it both ways. They're opposed to one another. Which one is it? I said, they're only opposed to one another in our puny, finite minds. But in the infinite, unbounded, unfathomable mind and thinking of God, he can harmonize the two Uh, We think contrasting theological perspectives, and so you have divine sovereignty coupled with free will, and one day we'll get to ask the Lord Jesus, how in the world did you make both of those work? How are both operative at the same time? Now, I know I'm right about the election part of it and the work of sovereign God in getting us ready through his spirit for salvation because John 16, verse 8 If we ever get there, and I myself am doubtful, it says, and he, when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. In so many words, that's what happened to you by the Holy Spirit, and that's why you were able to say, oh God, please forgive me, a sinner. Please come into my life, change me, adopt me into your family, save me forevermore, and I will follow you. So the first thing the Holy Spirit did was to bring us to Jesus. Second, he secures and seals us now that we are in Christ. Well, how do I know this? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Listen, in him, you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit not only enables us to see and believe and respond to the gospel message, when once we have done that, the Holy Spirit, after conversion, seals and secures us in the relationship so that we will not be lost. In uh, this day, Roman government had a custom. If there was an important letter that had to be sent in the Roman Empire from point A to point B, they would take the letter, fold it, maybe put it in an envelope. They would melt wax. It would drip on the envelope. On top of this still yet not hardened wax, the seal of Rome would be put, meaning nobody would dare tamper with it. It was assurance that 
that correspondence would reach its final destination. Do you know we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Evidence of his presence in our lives is a pledge that we will reach our final destination. We've been sealed in Christ through his Holy Spirit. Now, you said, well, can't you lose your salvation? Well, <laughs> the one sealed has to be stronger than the sealer in order to lose your salvation. I don't think there's anyone in here who's stronger than the one who has saved us. Even the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, you are in my hands, I'm in the Father's hands. We are double enveloped by God the Son and God the Father. You try evading his grasp. You cannot break the seal. The seal, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is a pledge and a guarantee that you and I will reach our final destination. When you buy a house, you are required to make a down payment. Everybody in their right mind knows, however, that's not all there is to it. That's just the first installment in the rest of what is to come. The Holy Spirit is that first installment on the rest of what is to come. That is our guarantee of eternal life. His presence in our life is like a down payment a promise that what God himself in his sovereign grace has begun in us, he will bring to completion until the time of Christ Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is the one who convicted us of sin, enabling us to see the need for a savior. The Holy Spirit is the one who is our pledge, who seals us and keeps us safe on into eternity. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us gifts with which we can serve God. Some time ago, we did a little more in-depth study on the lists of gifts in the Bible, so I'll not do so tonight. If you want more information on the specific gifts of the Holy Spirit, you can locate it on our website. All these messages by all of our wonderful teachers here at the church are recorded, and they can be quite a resource for you on the website. So there are gifts listed in various places, and here's the deal. Every single Christian receives at least one, I didn't say natural talent, no, 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 much better than that, spiritual gift. Listen, I got to tell you something. I was a high schooler, and we were required to take speech class. Have you gone through that? You know, they give you some subjects, and, and uh, you're nervously waiting for your turn. You got like a week to do your assignment, and then you're going to go up front in front of the whole class. This is high school and you're gonna give your speech. Well, I'm gonna tell you something. I would die for the week prior to the time when it was time for me to get up there. I mean, a wreck. Not sleeping, not eating, overthinking it, nervous as could be, fumbling over my words, finishing the task, not being relieved even after, feeling naked. I'm exposed now and vulnerable. I made a fool out of all that kind of stuff. And then, by God's grace, I came to be in his embrace as a Christian. And one of the gifts I believe God gave me, this is all his doing, is the gift of teaching. What does that mean? In order to manifest it, I have to get up in front of people. It's funny to me. 
because there was no natural talent nor inclination. I never had a desire to stand up in front of anybody. That is not the deal. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to call attention to me. I'm just trying to show you. We're not talking about natural talent here. Those are also God-given enablements. We're talking about a spiritual thing that's rather new that you never entirely fully experienced before. And why did he give it? So that you can get your jollies? No, 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 no. Every spiritual gift given is given for service. It's never given for personal aggrandizement or edification. That's why those who call undue attention to their so-called gifts tell me right away they don't got it. It's meant to build up the body of Christ. Isn't it good that our Father wanted to give us something useful to do in his absence while we're waiting for his return. And so he gave us spiritual gifts by which we could make a deposit in the lives of others. What an eternal investment. One final thing the Holy Spirit, I think, does for us is this. He helps us to know and to live by God's truths. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, you have, think about this, you have a resident teacher of truth in your life. He is in you to put you in touch with truth. I know this because of verse 17, where the Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth. I remember being in college and we were studying the Bible. This is a crazy secular pagan uh, school, but it was a literature class, literature from the Bible. It was an elective class. I needed three credits. I signed up for this deal. I had no interest in spiritual things whatsoever. So we looked at scripture. I got nothing out of it. Zippo. I was raised in a Jewish background. We're supposed to prize and value the oracles of God. I got nothing. Why? Blindness. No capacity, nothing illuminated in scripture. Words on paper, closed, because I didn't know the author. And when I came by his grace to know the author, and when he made his deposit of his very person, the Holy Spirit in my life, one of the evidences was the illumination of scripture. I remember even as a new believer, sitting in a military barracks, cracking open the Bible, and feeling like it was a love letter written to me. It might as well have said, Dear Stuart. It was just that real, just that dynamic. In fact, doesn't the Bible itself say of itself, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I was trying to know it, but it, the word of God, knows me. And it could address my stuff through the living dynamic words of God on paper. Well, that was the new, I never had that pre-Christ, neither did you. That's one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit. So as it says in verse 17, he, remember to he, not an it, abides with you and will be in you. That means every single Christian receives the very Holy Spirit of God. Therefore... You can do what you want, but I don't recommend you asking for the Holy Spirit <laughs> because you already have the Holy Spirit if you have Christ. He, the Holy Spirit, is a living person residing in the lives of 
every Christian and standing ready to use every Christian at any time. Now, since we already have him in our lives, we're commanded not to ask for him, but to be filled up with him. So we read things like this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine. That's a good idea. Don't be drunk with wine. Why not? Well, that's going to ruin your life. What's the option? Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. We're not commanded to ask for the Holy Spirit to come in because he already came in. We are commanded to be filled with him. What does that mean? Well, when you're filled with wine, what does it mean? It means you're under the influence. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it means you're under the influence. Not of an intoxicating beverage, not of a foreign substance. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be occupied, possessed by him. It's to give him room to operate. He's like a guest in our home. It's to determine what will this special guest want. It's to make space for him in the rooms of your heart. That's what it means to be regularly filled. It means to let him have control. And by the way, only Christians can do this because only Christians have the spirit of God to begin with. That's exactly what we are told, you can see, in verse 17. The spirit of truth, look at this whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Why is it that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you why. The world has to receive Jesus, the first helper, before they can receive the Holy Spirit, the second helper. Have you asked Jesus, the first helper, to come into your life? If so, and you're sure, you know you have the second helper in your life. What are evidences of the second helper in your life? If you don't see them, please come speak to one of us. Because if you have asked for Jesus, the first helper, to come into your life, he brings with him the second helper. I've shared this with you, but I'll do it again because it just, well, it's meaningful to me. I had just become a Christian. I was in the military. This was in 1973. I was playing basketball in a, in a building. It used to be a bomber factory, and the military converted it to basketball courts. I'm playing. I'm a new believer, just a few days old in Christ. I'm playing, and in the course of the game, something happened, and I used the Lord's name in vain. I've done that all the time. That was just a habit. It was, wasn't even something I was conscious of, but I was really conscious of it at that particular moment. It was like I looked around. I almost could hear an audible voice. I almost could hear someone saying, Stuart, don't do that. Do not treat God with such disrespect. But there was nobody there, just a bunch of smelly guys playing basketball. Well, later on in the game, it happened again because old habits, you know, die hard. Once again, I was stirred up. I was so in uncomfortable with what had previously been something I mindlessly did all the time. I wasn't uncomfortable about it at all. And then I realized, oh, God, you kept your word. You really did come into my life. Your spirit of truth is telling me lovingly and in a truthful way, Stuart, don't. Do that I am the most high 
God, don't use my name in vain on a basketball court. That was an evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. The second time, I remember opening scripture, as I said to you a little earlier, and uh, it was just so alive to me. It just had such relevance and such meaning, and I knew, wow, that's new. That's an evidence of God's spirit in me. Then this third thing, one time, friends came, knocked on the door of my room in the military barracks. This is what we did every night. They said, hey, come on, get ready. We're going to go out. We used to go to this. They have these cheap bars around, military installations. This is good talk, isn't it? But that's what we used to do. You, you, you go and you do the bar hopping thing and you, you get wasted and you, you do stuff. So here are the guys. Come on, come on, I'll get ready. And I remember saying to them one night, I hadn't thought through this. I remember saying, no, I'm not going tonight. I was a new Christian. He said, what do you mean you're not going tonight? I just don't want to. What do you mean you don't want to? I said, I don't even know why I don't want to. I just don't want to. And one of the guys said, did you get religion or something? Well, I didn't even know how to answer. I didn't, know, I didn't know a thing. When they just wrote me off like I was some kind of weirdo, and I felt like a weirdo, like an oddball. I was doing something I didn't even understand why I was doing. And then that showed me that's evidence of God taking up his abode as a special guest in my very life. It was God telling me, Stuart, you don't need to be doing that. Don't do that stuff anymore. I didn't have chapter and verse at the time. Nothing like that. Have you seen any evidence of the Holy Spirit? You know what really got me? I really wanted to go to a church. Well, that is the weirdest thing in the world for a Jew from New York City. And I went to a church. It was a small little country church in Nebraska, right near the military installation where I was stationed. Not only was there no Jew in the church, I don't think there's a Jew in the entire state. Now, I walked into this place. Why did I do it? I felt plenty uncomfortable, only for about 30 seconds. And then I felt, man, I'm home. They don't know my culture, and I don't know theirs, but we're together in this. We are Christians. And I remember they started singing songs, and I started joining in. And the words were just so meaningful. And I memorized a lot of that stuff. I still sing it. Don't you see this is all... Listen, I'll tell you one final evidence of the Holy Spirit. A missionary family came to that little church. There are Americans serving in Australia amongst the aboriginal tribes, people, groups in Australia. And they presented this marvelous work. And then an opportunity was given to us to pray for them and financially support them. And this Jewish guy found himself right now to check. <laughs> Need I say more? about the miraculous evidence of the Holy Spirit. Do you see stuff like that? Now, why would I do something like that? I barely knew where Australia was. Who are these people? And there was just something in me that told me, you gotta get on board. That's the stuff you ought to be interested in. That's an investment you ought to, you can't go to Australia. You can't do what they do, but you can help them stay in Australia, do that stuff. Have you seen evidences like that in your life? Listen to me. Any one of that kind of thing is a guarantee you have the Holy Spirit because not one of those is a natural inclination. Every one of those is a supernatural inclination. And if you see any one of those evidences of the second helper in your life, it's because the first helper is in your life. Please do not let the enemy cause you to doubt your salvation if you see evidences of the second helper in your life. There's no way he can get there unless you invited the first helper 
to be your savior. Now, I want to show you something. Take a look at this guy. We'll draw to a close here. His name is Ronald Amundsen. He's Norwegian. He was the, he discovered the South Pole, that guy did. When he got to the South Pole, he released a homing pigeon. It was trained to travel miles to go back to his home in Norway. What do you think his wife was thinking when she saw his homing pigeon arrive home safely? You tell me she wasn't rejoicing. My husband made it. He arrived at his destination. I know he's alive and well. Now listen here. Our Lord Jesus did leave. I have not seen him visibly. I doubt you have either. Those first followers were distressed about it, and we yearn to see him as well. And I think the Lord Jesus is saying, though you don't see me now, I have sent not a homing pigeon, but a Holy Spirit like a dove to give you evidence of the fact that I have arrived at my destination. The crucifixion wasn't the final word. The resurrection and ascension are the final words. You want evidences of where I am? It's the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is crying out to you. The second helper is crying out, don't despair. The first helper made it back home. And all we have to do is do the greater work of gospel sharing until the second helper reminds us that the first helper is returning to us. You know what all this does? It creates in the heart of anyone with ears to hear a blessed kind of assurance that Jesus is yours. Not a concept, not an abstraction. In fact, you receive a kind of a foretaste of glory divine. You become, you become an heir of salvation, a kind of a purchase of God because you're born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Wouldn't it be great if someone put those words to music? <laughs> Somebody did. Let's sing it together. Just the chorus. Blessed assurance. It's on the screen. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a of Who are you? Heir of salvation. Purchase of God. Here's the point. Born of Washed in I hope this is your story. This is This is my This is what our job is. Praising All the day long This is my story This is my song Praise God bless you, fellow Christians.